You're listening to One Decision. I'm your host, Julia McFarlane. We recorded this discussion on Tuesday, June 28th in Madrid, just a few hours before NATO announced that Turkey had dropped its objections to Finland and Sweden applying for membership, the foreign ministers of all three countries signing a memorandum of understanding with the Secretary General on Tuesday evening. Welcome to our viewers uh, watching around the world. You're watching One Decision. We are broadcasting live from here in Madrid, uh, The Hague, uh, and sunny or not so sunny London. Um, I want to start off by just briefly introducing the guests that we have today. Uh, we have His Excellency Yap de Hoop Scheffler, the 11th Secretary General of NATO from 2004 to 2009. Just before that, he was also the Foreign Minister in the Netherlands from 2002 to 2003. Since retiring from politics, he's been a Professor of International Relations at his alma mater, uh, Leiden University in the Netherlands. We have with us today Robin Niblett. He is uh, Director and Chief Executive of the Chatham House Think Tank, uh, and he has been since 2007. Before that, he was Vice President and COO of the Centre for Strategic and International Studies. Uh, and, relevant to today, uh, he has served as Chair of the Experts Group for the 2014 NATO Summit. 2014, uh, looking increasingly like a very, very relevant year, uh, pertinent to our conversation today. And with me in Madrid, we have Larissa Brown. She is the uh, award-winning journalist and currently defense editor for The Times uh, and diplomatic and security correspondent for The Sunday Times. She has previously been a Middle East correspondent for the Daily Mail based in Beirut and has reported from a number of conflict zones, including Syria uh, and Libya. Uh, thank you all of you uh, for, for joining us today. And thank you so much to everyone who's tuning in, uh, ready to listen to our discussion. Uh, I'm going to go straight to it because we've got a lot to get through today. Now, when NATO published its last strategic concept back in 2010, one of the declarations uh, was the intent to form a strategic and cooperative partnership with Russia. Uh, the discussions happening this week to agree a new strategic concept couldn't illustrate more of the shift uh, that has happened since then. Many people have argued that we are not dealing with a new Russia, that the current situation has been on the cards for quite some time. We are dealing with an increasingly uh, unpredictable Vladimir Putin, who, if certain reports are to be uh, believed, he may have very personal reasons for being even more unpredictable and determined to see a victory than we might perhaps realise. We're already seeing uh, fractures in the EU-NATO alliance. Some states are presenting arguments for getting Russia to the table to try and negotiate a settlement with Ukraine. Other states, Ukraine included, argue that negotiations will inevitably allow Russia uh, to consolidate the territorial gains that it has made uh, already and will complicate Ukraine's efforts to retake its land that is now under Russian occupation. Uh, we spoke to one permanent representative here today at, at NATO who pointed out that there are very few wars that have ever been resolved without a peace treaty or a settlement. So my first question to our guest today, uh, and this is for, uh, for Robin, uh, what are the options, uh, uh, or are there only two options that remain? Ukrainian capitulation over the ground that it has lost, giving the Donbass areas to the Russian Federation, or an escalation in military support and involvement that will empower the Ukrainians to not only defend their people from attack, but to push Russia back to its international borders. Well, first of all, thank you very much, uh, Julia. Pleasure to be part of this group and, and with such distinguished company. Um, well, I don't think those are the two, the two solutions. 
I mean, there are two extremes of solutions, obviously, there are the two ends of the spectrum. But my sense would be, sadly, um, that as far forward as I can see, we're heading to a new form of frozen conflict in uh, Europe. I mean, it has echoes and parallels, but not entirely, but some of the Korean Peninsula, I don't know, Cyprus, um, a unresolved uh, conflict. Uh, I f find it hard to see at the pace that things are going right now that the Russian uh, Federation, Vladimir Putin, would be able to take much more than all of the Donbass, and always make more gains than he has done so far, potentially also in the Donetsk region, um, to keep the two other provinces he's got above um, uh, Crimea. That's quite a large bit of territory and a lot of uh, front line to defend. Um, and uh, I could see him potentially hunkering down, wanting to declare a ceasefire, see if he can create divisions amongst, as you said at the beginning, the Western alliance uh, of those who would say, right, well, maybe we can find some um, long-term solution on this new front line, but it would be unacceptable to the United States on whom uh, all of Europe depends for their security, as well as being, of course, unacceptable to um, President Zelensky in Kiev. Now, I'll just say one more thing now, because we need to see whether the others agree with me or not, but I uh, had the chance of interviewing President Zelensky about three or four weeks ago, and I noted he used the term unacceptable. Um, and unacceptable, well, there are many things in the world that are unacceptable. Um, just because they're unacceptable doesn't mean that you have the means or the capacity in the near term to reverse them. So to your question there, um, I don't think uh, we have a, a capitulation by Ukraine. I think the amount of quantities of weaponry, the political support, the material support, the popular support for resisting, um, I, I struggle to see that declining. But I also struggle to see their capacity to push the Russians back. And I do not see Vladimir Putin giving up the very, very hard-won gains that he's got, which could give him the basis for a greater Russia kind of narrative if he wanted to settle for it. There's some debate as to whether he would want to settle. Um, and we end up with a, with a frozen conflict with us supporting Ukraine, uh, the Russians always being a bit of a threat. Um, and that's, I'm afraid, my near and even medium-term scenario, with the sanctions remaining on and Russia looking east and south and, and fighting the narrative with the rest of the world uh, to have them on their side and us having a, a really a new form of Iron Curtain down Europe. Uh, yep, what's your view from The Hague? Do you think we're down to those two extreme options? Um, what, what do you make of uh, uh, Robin's frozen conflict? Well, I... I do not see many arguments to disagree with what Robin said, but I would like to uh, to start with reacting to your uh, your initial words. I think uh, Putin is rational. He is a rational guy, uh, but his rationality is boxed in by his worldview, and his worldview is I want my empire back, and he's busy doing that. Uh, so uh, rational, and that rationality can be dangerous. Uh, and and he is a long-term guy. Uh, he has his uh, his ambitions for the long term. So it could indeed well be that that we'll be confronted with a frozen conflict. Uh, the Russians can't win definitely, and and Ukraine cannot lose thanks to our uh, arms deliveries. Uh, I would bring in, by the way, if we discuss the long term, uh, the resilience of our democracies, because it's very important. So we now see the Ukraine war 
uh, not always at the front page, uh, but page five or, or, or six. Uh, how resilient are we? Uh, how long are we keeping up the solidarity you will see in the NATO summit in Madrid without any doubt you see inside the European Union? Uh, Putin has the time on his side in that in that regard, and he might at a certain stage, if he considers that he has enough for the moment, I underline for the moment, in, 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 in Donbass, uh, because he will need time uh, to refresh his forces, to reorganize his forces, uh, that, that at a later stage uh, in, in one, two or three years, uh, barring a palace coup in, in, in Moscow, uh, he'll restart at Odessa uh, and the other side of, of Crimea, making the link with the Transnistria uh, and, and degrading Ukraine to a completely uh, landlocked country. On, on Robin's uh, understandable uh, explanation of, of the word unacceptable, I, I think quite honestly it's, it's not up to us, uh, and I'm referring to the discussion on the basis of Henry Kissinger's comments a few weeks ago, it's, it's not up to us now uh, uh, to, to speak and to discuss publicly what concessions uh, Zelensky would have to make. I think that's really that's really up to him, uh, and 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 we shouldn't directly interfere in this regard. But again, I'll I'll, I'll end where I started. Putin is rational. Uh, uh, if it's a frozen conflict, uh, like Robin was indicating, and I have no arguments, I repeat, to disagree with him, then we might well see it go into uh, the not only the midterm elections in the U.S. but also the presidentials in 2014 and a new president in 2015. Uh, so we might see much more of this, and we might not always see United States of America, which is taking the lead as the US has done and Biden has done over the past weeks. Uh, because uh, let me conclude by saying that, that what we see in NATO up till now and in the European Union for that matter is an unprecedented form of solidarity. But again, then comes the resilience of democracies uh, in again. Uh, let, let me finish here, Julia. Uh, right. I mean, that's also one very good reason why uh, Putin may be perfectly happy for this conflict to drag uh, on and on uh, well into the midterms and then on to the next presidential election. Um, Larissa, uh, how do you do you think a frozen conflict is uh, is likely? And also uh, what, what Yap was saying there about how it's not in anyone's um, place to tell Ukraine what concessions it should or, sh or should not give. We've heard a lot of people uh, attending NATO say this this week. However, is it not inevitable that when people uh, bring up the need for, for negotiations and, and peace talks, that's essentially the unspoken thing they're saying. They may not be directing Zelensky to, to think about concessions, but that is, that is what peace talks will inevitably involve, is it not? Yeah, and I think all the Ukrainian military contacts that I speak to quite often are really, really uh, quite firm on the idea that they are not going to want to enter into any form of mm. uh, peace deal with Putin at the moment. They are, of course, tired. We've got some Ukrainian forces that have been on the front line uh, throughout, and they need to get out of there. They need to be uh, replaced by reserve forces, and that you know they are they they are struggling, uh, but. The Western, the Western alliance and allies have said that they're going to obviously send more, more, more equipment to the country, and I think that has emboldened them. That's made them feel more confident that actually, as long-range weapons do arrive, they will be able to start striking back those Russian positions, and especially those uh, positions that uh, are quite far away. You know, they're, they're going to have these long-range weapons that can hit targets 50 miles away, which will be a bit of a game changer, I think, for for the Ukrainians. I was speaking to uh, British and. American 
American uh, military chiefs quite recently, however, in, in Stuttgart, and they were saying that they are preparing actually for a, a long war, that there's no suggestion that this is going to end anytime soon, and they're looking at sending uh, weapons in the years to come and coordinating all of that uh, kit into Ukraine in, in, you know, way past uh, Christmas time, which obviously is the date that Zelensky said he wants it all to be over. Uh, so I think it's quite um, quite a, a sort of bleak situation at the moment. Um, we've, we've heard how, uh, obviously in the Donbass region, uh, the um, Russian forces have managed to take Severodonetsk over the, over the weekend. And analysts that I'm speaking to do believe that the Russian forces will ultimately be able to actually take much more territory in the Donbass, albeit it is very slow progress. Uh, however, the Russian forces have got much more reserve forces and they've got more kit on the way. Right, so that that brings me then to uh, something that I think is potentially extremely problematic. Um, Larissa points out uh, the gains that Russia has been making recently. Severodonetsk is the biggest victory since the fall of Mariupol. Uh, the amount of territory that Russia has managed to carve out in the east so far is really quite significant. Um, and as we have discussed, Zelensky has certainly uh, articulated that he is not uh, minded to give any part of uh, his country to Vladimir Putin for a ceasefire. Um, and so what then, uh, what is the current NATO policy uh, of arming Ukraine in its defence at the moment? Is it, is it explicitly li limited to defensive postures and pushing Russia back from its advance? Or is there NATO support for pushing Russia back to its border? And what do we do then? Because the Kremlin has said that any attack on its sovereign territory it will uh, will demand uh, an escalation and of course that the the gains that the russians have made they now see as russian federation territory uh, so what what is the current nato policy on allowing the on helping the ukrainians to take back push russia back to the to the border I think every country's obviously got its own opinion. Uh, Britain, for example, has been quite uh, quite hawkish actually on this entire approach. They've said that they're supplying uh, weapons to uh, Ukraine, and U Ukraine can then do what they want with the weapons, i.e. the idea that if they're sending them uh, ca capabilities that are able to strike into Russian territory, then it's up to Ukraine if they want to do that. Of course, America's taken a bit more of a different approach, and they've said that they uh, wouldn't want uh, weapons that they're supplying to Ukraine to be used against Russia. And Russia obviously have said that if any of that uh, kit is being used against Russia in Russian territory, then they would fight back. But Russia's also uh, saying a lot uh, about any kit at all going into Ukraine and has said that it's going to target those supplies. So either way, we're, we are obviously seeing quite a strong language from Russia. Robin, you look like you're about to come in with, with a thought. Uh, well, I was, I was just gonna say that I think um, this is very, awkward balancing line. I mean, it's, it's, it hasn't been awkward yet, but it could become awkward between what is the kind of NATO position and what are the positions of individual member states. And that was partly Larissa's uh, indication there, uh, because there's a bit of sort of game playing in this position. The UK definitely has taken the most hawkish stance. Um, it has not relied on NATO to take the position it did. Weapons were not supplied uh, by Britain or by other countries as part of a sort of NATO weapon supply uh, process, as far as I understand it. Um, uh, and so NATO is, and I'm going to hear what Yap has to say about this, but NATO is kind of sitting behind the NATO member states, giving them the confidence to undertake the bilateral steps they're taking. And would you have a you know, small country like Lithuania being <laughs> as aggressive as it can be 
um, even under the EU concept of limiting the transport of certain types of products by rail through to Kaliningrad, you know, if it didn't have the backing of NATO? And would you have some of the smaller member states allowing weapons uh, to be transited across their territory into Ukraine and then to take on Russian troops if they were not members of NATO? So I think NATO's principal role right now as an alliance is to provide the strength and the confidence and the framing position for the individual member states to then do what they've said they're going to do in its support. That's good. At some point, I think yeah, I was saying this uh, earlier, maybe Larissa as well, at some point, you know, you could start to see some cracks appearing between the various individual positions, maybe within the EU as an institution, and then NATO may have to move to a different role. But so far, I think it's, it's defending those other countries and strengthening the sense of strength from which individual countries can operate and support Ukraine. That's, that's its main role. I, I, I do agree with Robin. The, uh, let's say the start and the background of this question uh, and, and this discussion, of course, is that uh, to the best of my knowledge, and as long as I'm interested in NATO during my active period, but also afterwards, the alliance, and it's, it's now papered over by, by solidarity, the NATO alliance nor the European Union have ever had a consensual Russia policy. Uh, uh, and, and I'm not entirely without concern that as, as time passes uh, uh, that, that uh, we will be able, I hope, uh, to, to avoid what I qualify as an Iraq scenario 2003 uh, where, you, where you had, of course, a, a coalition on the one hand, the United States of America strongly supported by Britain and a number of European nations and on the other side in Iraq, the Russians and the Chinese, but also France and Germany. And that, that was, of course, a huge rift in the European Union and in NATO. Uh, and I say again, resilience of democracies as, as time passes and as time progresses. Uh, and if, if, if the calculation in the Netherlands is that we will miss uh, about one uh, about 100 billion BCM on gas in the coming in the coming winter, uh, I am uh, uh, not without concern uh, that politicians uh, in Britain uh, and in the Netherlands, for that matter, uh, or in Germany or, or France, might come to different conclusions about what I qualify as the day after. Uh, Robin is exactly right in his analysis on, on the weapons. It's indeed a fine line. Uh, we discussed no fly zone, no way, uh, no political backing in, 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 in general. But if, when, when I look deeper into, try to look deeper into the, into the, the heads of Scholz and Macron, I'm absolutely certain uh, that, that, that they are trying one way or the other uh, to, to see that they keep a little door open uh, about the relationship with the Russian Federation on the day after. Uh, Macron went, of course, too far with his comments on not humiliating Vladimir Putin. Uh, but let's realize that the relationship Berlin-Moscow for the Germans is almost as important as the relationship uh, Berlin-Paris. Uh, we, we underestimate this in the, in the, in the western part of, 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 of Europe uh, and, and, and France is France. And France certainly, Macron, uh, coming back to Robin's comments, Ma Macron will not accept to NATOize uh, weapons deliveries to Ukraine. Uh, the NATO, NATO still is given its political backing, and Jens Stoltenberg can make his comments about this. Uh, but weapons deliveries are the individual nations, and no longer range artillery to avoid uh, either the Ukrainians provoking the Russians 
uh, or the Russians provoking the Ukrainians. I mean, they both can, can organize false flag operations when, when you would have this long-range artillery. But Biden, credit where credit's due, I think Joe Biden is sailing a sort of middle course in this regard. He is not Liz Truss uh, or, or Boris Johnson in the hard line, and Baltic states and, and, and Poland, but he's also not uh, in the position of Macron and, 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 and Schultz. And I think he should stay in the middle because that's the only way to keep the consensus uh, in, in NATO and for that matter, without the Americans, of course, to keep the consensus in the European Union. I, I definitely want to get to, to France and Germany, but just because, Robin, you briefly mentioned Lithuania. Uh, right now, as we speak, Lithuania is that one member state of NATO which is coming under attack from the Russians. Uh, its government has said that it's faced a barrage uh, of cyber attacks, of distributed denial of service attacks from Russian hacker groups uh, who claim on Telegram that it is in retaliation to Lithuania's decision to block the transport of Russian goods from the exclave of Kaliningrad, uh, which is on the Baltic coast. The Latvian president told us earlier this morning that there are conversations taking place uh, on the sidelines uh, as to whether cyber attacks should uh, should constitute attacks that would in theory trigger, trigger Article 5 and uh, exploring at what level would a cyber attack make NATO retaliation necessary. Uh, Robin, let's start with you. What is your opinion? Uh, what, what in your opinion should be the position adopted by the Alliance on this as we are we're only likely to see more, uh, not fewer kinds of as, uh, asymmetric warfare and cyber warfare attacks such as Lith the Lithuanians are seeing now? The first thing I have to say is I think that um, let's remind ourselves that Article 5 is very broadly written. <laughs> so, and again, Yap will, uh, will get the wording right for me here, but it's along the lines of, um, you know, that uh, if one person is attacked, all the others will render assistance as necessary kind of thing. But it's not, you know, we're coming here with the tanks. Um, that uh, room for manoeuvre is left to the individual governments. And I say this because the question is, what is an attack? You could argue that Russia's decision to cut uh, Bulgaria, um, Poland, I think even the Dutch have had some cutbacks, but explicitly Poland and Bulgaria, their gas supplies uh, cut by Russia. Why is that not considered an Article 5 attack? Uh, that is deeply disruptive to their economies, potentially puts them in a, actually an existentially dangerous position. Um, and denial of service can be uh, disruptive, but you could argue probably less disruptive, depending on how much your government relies uh, on, on particular service provision through the internet and so on. But once you get into this hybrid, non-military, direct military physical attack uh, into destruction of territory, uh, uh, killing of lives, and of course there are certain types of um, cyber attacks that could entail uh, that kind of an escalation, cyber attack on air traffic control or something of that sort could lead to death. So again, I, the reason I raise all of this is that I think the talk that we need to think about cyber being an area for Article 5 response, and somehow that implying that the threshold to reach uh, into military escalation needs to be advanced and brought closer. I don't think this is what this summit should be about, and I don't think it's where we're going. Um, a lot of what NATO is about right now, to go back to what I said earlier, is about increasing resilience, increasing the strength of action for NATO as an alliance and NATO members to then slowly apply really long-term pressure on Russia, so long as it's led by Vladimir Putin. Um, 
And I do think that um, the, just to come to a point you made a, a second ago, Julia, I think one shouldn't underestimate, and maybe this to Yap as well, we shouldn't underestimate the extent to which the psychological impact of seeing uh, an invasion of Ukraine that resembles so much uh, the initial parts of the, of the Nazi invasion of parts of Europe in the 30s. The fact that it looks like that, the wanton destruction of cities, the death of civilians, that can echo, I think, is having a deeply traumatizing effect upon uh, many European voters, thinkers, um, ultimately politicians, uh, and means that you know, they, they are in for a longer-term readjustment of their security position. And if you're going to take that longer-term adjustment, you need to put each thing into its box. Uh, and I would say that uh, cyber uh, is one in which one has to focus as much as possible on resilience and protection. The British government has a new cyber defense force which talks a bit more explicitly about offensive actions, but there's very few uh, NATO member states that could undertake any kind of meaningful cyber um, proactive action, and NATO as an alliance is not designed to take proactive cyber action. Uh, again, uh, letting Larissa and, and Yap correct me if I'm wrong on this, but that's my understanding. So, um, yeah, that's a long way of saying, yeah, it doesn't surprise me Lithuania's on the hard end of this stick, but remember people are literally having their, their gas supplies cut off, which could affect services to hospitals, you know, and uh, uh, people's lives. So it's, yeah, hybrid is big. Uh, chip in there because obviously you know a large focus of um, this summit is obviously going to be about Ukraine but Jens Stoltenberg did say yesterday that they would be discussing uh, cyber as well and uh, I'm under the impression that some some nations will be discussing the idea that they want to beef up uh, vulnerable states' cyber capabilities uh, to make sure that they can defend against attacks should Russia decide to go uh, go down that route. But of course, the problem here is that often it's quite difficult to attribute many of those uh, cyber attacks. Mm. And so it could be quite hard for the alliance to, to actually mount a response because they don't know who's actually carrying it out and they can't be 100% certain that it is mm. the Russian state or the Chinese state uh, behind them. Um, so it's, so it's, it's quite, quite an interesting debate because also how would they even... Uh, uh, how would they respond to such an attack? Would they actually carry out then an offensive cyber? Would they respond by, uh, I don't know, uh, cutting off a, a Russia power grid and or cutting off their uh, social networking site? So it's a bit unclear on how would how Article Five would then be put into into practice. I think that's a really good point, and I think that's that that. Uh strategy of plausible deniability is something that is very much deliberate in terms of, of how Moscow uh, goes about these things and obviously makes it very, very difficult to attribute to who you reta retaliate against. I just want to uh, just very briefly go back to the Baltic states because they have been arguing for years uh, for a bigger NATO presence on the eastern flank. They are repeating those calls today. They made them back in 2014 and have been consistently since. Uh, Yap, this question for you. Is there a decision that needs to be made here uh, on whether or not uh, to set up permanent bases um, on the eastern flank and on uh, some of the new member states. Absolutely, and, and, and if I have it right, that will be one of the more complicated discussions uh, uh, we will see at the, at the, at the summit. Uh, just to go back to, to, uh, to earlier, sunnier times, when, when I took up uh, uh, my job at NATO, uh, the common opinion was uh, air policing over the Baltic is not necessary uh, because the relationship with Russia worked, worked quite all right then. 
I mean, let's not forget that Putin started only in two, 2007 in Munich uh, to lay out his plans. I want my empire back in my in, in my own words. Now, now you see, of course, a completely different different scenario. Uh, to answer your questions, NATO will certainly organize and have to organize a robust presence at its eastern flank, including the the, the Baltic states. Uh, but we should not forget that if the Baltic states uh, are, are asking for brigade level plus enablers, combat support, combat service support and, 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 and what have you, uh, the, the question is A, uh, where do you going to find the, the, the men and women, the forces, uh, uh, B, what will it cost, uh, always an important discussion in NATO. Because as you know, the NATO budget as such is relatively small. Cost line where they fall is the principal. So who is going to pay? And point number three, uh, also to be discussed at, at, at the summit, I heard Schultz in Germany say we'll support the Baltics at a distance. We'll have a presence more robust than the battalions we have there now. Uh, but we'll make sure that we can quickly reinforce uh, in, 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 in the, uh, on the occasion of, of, of crisis. There, there my point is, and I can imagine that they're a bit concerned by that, can we quickly reinforce? Uh, do we have the rail capacity, road capacity? Uh, what, what about the fact that in the Netherlands no single piece of ammunition can, can leave its storage uh, w without a special permit? Uh, in, in, in Germany, I remember those bridges when I went to Austria through Germany with my parents, uh, with, with the exact weight uh, uh, on the side of the bridge, uh, what could it carry? Uh, we, we can now see uh, heavy armor, uh, the bridges not, not being able uh, to carry that heavy armor. In, in other words, uh, my prediction will be uh, that it will be robust, but not as robust as the Baltic states and Poland and others are, are asking. Very robust, in my opinion, meets a Cold War situation where you have really large military bases with uh, the, the military taking their families with them. So cities, as we had them in the in the in the in the Cold War along the along the eastern flank, uh, I, I do not expect that situation to return. And my concern is uh, that if it is a bit robust, not very robust. I hope I have explained what I what I mean by that. Uh, how then the reinforcement uh, uh, in, in times of crisis is organized? Because Jens Stoltenberg said quite rightly, and I understand that the response force is going to be brought up to 300,000. Uh, but, but how do you transport 300,000 people, if, if necessary, with all their enablers, with their, with their equipment, while well, we have neglected during our political holiday, geopolitical holiday, since the Berlin Wall fell, how, how on earth can we transport and get those people in those places at the right time? Uh, and, and now I make the link with what Robin said about, about Lithuania and the Suwalki gap. Uh, if, if Russia or Belarus closes that Suwalki gap, how on earth are we going to reinforce the, the, the Baltic states? In other words, very, very complicated, uh, but I think it will be much more, of course, robust. We will go from forward presence to forward defense. We'll go from uh, deterrence by, by punishment to deterrence by denial. But there's an awful lot necessary inside the NATO organization in the military, presupposing that allies will agree politically before the, we, we, we reach the situation we want to have. 
Yep, I, I, I absolutely take your point. I would be willing to stick my neck out and say I have much more confidence in NATO being able to maneuver its troops across Europe than the Russians have shown themselves uh, to have been able to move their troops forward uh, into Ukraine so. in recent months. <laughs> yes, let's hope so. Uh, Robin, same question to you. Uh, permanent bases, do we, are they now necessary? Do we really need to be considering them or do you think uh, that setting up permanent bases close to the Russian border would likely, to, likely be so provocative to Moscow for it to be counterproductive? Uh, well, I, I don't think it would be so, it, it would be provocative. I don't think the fact that it would be provocative would make it counterproductive. Um, I do think, however, that it is politically unfeasible for the member states who would need to do it, at least right now. It is a very large expense. It is a kind of long-term fixed commitment. And I think NATO is is moving incredibly quickly and racing up in terms of levels of expenditure and so on. Um, but ultimately, the first move is to work out how you move, to, to Yap's point, how do you move equipment, or more to the point, how do you move troops um, in to be able to reinforce what would be pre-positioned equipment in these, in these areas. Uh, because even if you had a reasonably large uh, garrison uh, in particular countries, there's still a larger kind of tripwire. They would still be vulnerable if you didn't have the capacity to reinforce. So I would argue that, you know, this is not like being positioned in Germany in front of the Fulda Gap where you had the whole hinterland uh, and the land hinterland, if you see what I'm saying, that Germany provided during the Cold War. Uh, those Baltic states, even some pre-positioned bases there would be very, very, very vulnerable, very close to the border, very little strategic depth. Um, and uh, they're not the best example, I think, of a new position. Now, Poland might make a different case. Poland could potentially make a case that it needs some bases there. Um, and that might be a harder one to, to, to sort of deny, if you see what I'm saying. But right now, I think this summit is going to be focused on massive increases in readiness, in investment, uh, in planning, in reinforcement, in logistics, just trying to create, uh, yeah, I love that comment, geopolitical holiday, you said, yeah, after that period, kind of trying to get people rebooted into thinking about defence as a core part of their, of their domestic politics, to be frank. Uh, Larissa, um, Yap mentioned uh, a, a very interesting scenario, which is the Siwalki Gap. That is this tiny little, uh, it's just, it's a few dozen miles long. It's this uh, area in Lithuania between Kaliningrad and Belarus. It has been described by many people as NATO's most vulnerable area. Uh, Yap uh, mentioned that there is the, 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 the hypothesis that, that, that Russian Belarus could occupy that gap, gap and therefore that has profound security uh, ramifications and considerations for the Baltic states. Just humor me, what happens if, if that, what would, what would, how would NATO respond to that? What would happen if all of a sudden uh, the Russians were able to encircle the Baltics by taking over the Suwalki Gap? Well, actually, I was speaking to uh, one official uh, in a NATO member state in that region uh, before the crisis in Ukraine, and they were extremely concerned about this situation, and they have been for a number of years. Uh, and they were actually telling me that they thought there might be sort of a, a hybrid warfare situation that could happen. So it won't be as obvious as, as sort of Russia moving troops in. It might be that they try and exploit the situation, send migrants into the area, mm. so then they can then use that as a justification to actually then go into go into 
into the gap and that could then of course uh, potentially provoke a response by NATO but it would all be a bit murky so it wouldn't be quite clear what actually allies should then do in that situation uh, so if it, you know it, it, these these tensions are obviously just uh, heightened at the moment uh, uh, speaking to uh, Estonian officials as well they are they are of course don't think the current uh, NATO uh, force posture is fit for purpose they think that they've they've got a 40,000 strong high readiness force that of course is being increased to 300,000 but actually that 40,000 strong force it's not exactly clear how 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 that would react? How long did it take to get there? Mm, uh, whether it exists? Yeah. yeah. What exactly is it? So mm. the idea that then uh, NATO allies are going to be able to muster up this three hundred thousand strong force mm. uh, that will be able to uh, respond to a Russian invasion it just seems a uh, uh, quite implausible at the moment and I think we do need a bit more detail on how how exactly it's going to work. Yeah, we, we did have that announcement from Jens Stoltenberg uh, on Monday ahead of ahead of the summit, ahead of the talks taking place. Uh, the high alert troops now going up to 300,000. Uh, Yap, what was your reaction to uh, to that announcement? I, I, I think some of us were quite surprised to see uh, a big announcement uh, being made before the summit was even taking place. What was your immediate reaction to that? Well, uh, my immediate reaction was uh, Jens Stoltenberg is, is trying is trying to calm the waters in the Baltics, uh, because because uh, th this is what the issue we're discussing now is of course for the for the Baltic states and po Poland. Uh, Robin mentioned Poland. I I I, I, I speak to uh, to Polish friends uh, who uh, who want the U.S. division uh, in in stationed in in, in Poland. But let's focus on the Baltic states. I think Jens, Jens was trying to calm to calm the waters in in in, in announcing this without without too many uh, too many details, in the sense that yes, guys, we're with you uh, and and we're trying to do our utmost uh, to see that you're protected uh, as 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 well as possible. Uh, I, I I I do not see any other uh, explanation. I mean, he's not he's not making this up. I mean, he. Shoot, as the Secretary General, of course, has uh, have uh, support before he makes these uh, these these public comments. But I, I repeat what I said before. But behind this uh, this statement uh, is also, uh, and I think Robert mentioned it in passing, it's a huge financial discussion. Uh, because the French, uh, to give you an example, they they have always very much been opposed to any increase in NATO's budget in what is called common funding uh, as the cost line where they fall is the principle. So nations who provide the forces will have to pay, uh, uh, which is not nice for some uh, and certainly not nice for others. Uh, so it, 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 is, it, is, uh, it is from Jens's point of view, the Secretary General's point of view, it's a bit setting the scene and I also have the impression calming, calming the waters a bit uh, ahead of the summit. I'd like to turn now to the economic issues at hand, um, given what you say about budgets. The, the EU finalised its latest one trillion budget, which is supposed to last seven years. Uh, they did that back in late 2020, and that was already agreed uh, in, in conjunction with an 800 billion euro COVID recovery programme. But uh, as we've uh, touched upon, EU officials are already worried about spiralling costs and there are competing demands on that budget. 
Inflation is hitting the Eurozone uh, more than 8%. Many European nations um, were already hit with rising energy costs even before Russia invaded Ukraine. There's the arrival of millions of refugees from Ukraine. There's a global food crisis uh, uh, challenging um, countries uh, outside of Europe as well. Uh, The EU Commission are already having conversations about whether member nations will have to chip in even more money before the end of the budgetary term in 2027. Jay Powell, the chair of the Federal Reserve, has recently said that recession in the US is certainly a possibility. Um, Robin, I think I can guess what your answer is going to be before I ask it, but uh, can the West currently afford, in financial terms at least, to defeat Russia and help Ukraine secure a victory against Vladimir Putin? (laughs) Uh, Can it afford to? Um, Well, as we've seen through COVID and even through the global financial crisis before it, money is often a question of willpower, political credibility. Um, I mean, vast sums of money put down on the table um, to deal with the COVID recovery. Now, we've got to realize some of that money is credible because of the steps taken to reinforce American, but especially European uh, economies in the wake of the global financial crisis, where the banks themselves had to flush out a lot of bad debt. Uh, There's much better reserves. And very importantly, Germany specifically cut its debt down, you know, to to historically low levels and was running budget surpluses for a good four or five years prior to to this invasion, um, prior to COVID at least. Um, So I suppose the first thing I'd say is that Uh, My reading would be European countries, which have slower growth and therefore less capacity to promise money long term, um, do still have some uh, gas in the tank to see uh, themselves at least into a difficult winter. Whether they could get out the other side of it, um, if we were still in a really severe form of conflict um, with Russia and with even larger escalation uh, by Russia of reducing uh, gas supplies. Yeah, I think in timeline that could become really quite difficult. We're in this race between trying to get uh, LNG uh, reverse supplies of, of energy being reverse flow down pipelines, get renewables online, get Venezuela, even Iran into the into the market. I do feel we're in a kind of race <laughs> to be able to to keep up with the. Uh, uh, defense commitments that we've been discussing here, which are expensive both in the near term and the medium term. Um, A race between that and getting through a moment of extreme economic fragility and vulnerability. And uh, it's it's almost impossible to see, you know, all all the way through this. I would simply say that if America goes into recession, you know, of one, two percent of GDP, that's a big political problem for Biden, but it's not a disaster for America. Um, and if Europe went into a 3-4% deficit, that would be a big political problem for some of the leaders, but it wouldn't be a complete disaster for the European economy. Um, on the other hand, the problem we have is that if, if uh, Russia has a 15% fall in GDP, it's probably not going to be a disaster for Vladimir Putin because he will paper it over and he knows he still has revenue coming in uh, from his oil and gas, uh, in particular as he sells more of it to the south and the east and, and grain, blah, blah, blah. So, sorry, this is a long, long way of me sort of wending my way to an answer to your question. Can, can we afford it? I, I think uh, a lot of this is to do with political will. And I go back to what I said before. 
the nature of Vladimir Putin's attack, the brazenness of it, the brutality of it, combined with the very effective uh, public relations campaign undertaken by President Zelensky and the Ukrainians, combined with their remarkable fortitude and valiance, and the way this has really captured the imagination of geopolitically staycationed um, uh, uh, Europeans who now see people really fighting on the front line, I think there is more strategic reserve of political will, both popular and political, than I expected at this point. I expected more cracks, to be frank, than I see right now. So I'm going to stick my neck out and say that I think the Europeans can afford this. Um, you know, all things being equal, whatever that phrase means, but it's my little protection, uh, can afford this, you know, towards the end of this year. If we're going into the beginning of 2023, kind of where we are now, and there's been no progress at all, it might start to crack. It will be extremely tough because the European Union has a huge task ahead. Uh, let's not discuss the fact that there are now 10 nations in the waiting room, including Ukraine. And my opinion is that a European Union uh, with 10 more members cannot function. It will be impossible. So the European Union has an awful lot of soul searching to do. I support the decision to give Ukraine candidate status because politically, psychologically, there was no alternative. But it is a huge decision. Together with Moldova and then comes Georgia, you have the Western Balkan states. Uh, the European Union will not survive uh, a, a, a next enlargement round without a fundamental reappraisal of what it is, what it, what it wants to be. That's point number one. Point number two, linking my comments to what, what Robin said, uh, as, as you remember, the, the COVID crisis in, during the COVID crisis, uh, Europe has sidelined uh, the holy principles of 60% state debt, 3% budget deficit, uh, uh, close to in the range of 2% inflation. Uh, the big discussion will be, uh, uh, are we going back uh, to those criteria uh, or are we not? In my opinion, we will not, uh, because given uh, what's happening in the world geopolitically, we, we, we can't. Uh, but you see the spreads between the German Bund and the Italian, uh, you, you see the spreads growing. So there's an urgency, financial urgency in, 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 in the European Union. And the European Union, much more than NATO, of course, has the toolbox uh, to use or not to use vis-a-vis -vis this horrible war in, 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 in Ukraine. And here I'm, 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 I'm a bit, uh, how shall I phrase it, a, a bit, perhaps a bit more concerned than Robin about our societies. That's why, when, because that's the reason I started with the resilience of our democracies. Uh, when, when we'll have a cold winter uh, and when we'll be short of gas, and indeed Robin Putin has also half closed the tap to the Netherlands, and, and we have now a, a huge discussion if we should reopen the Groningen gas field, uh, which, which, which has still a gas supply for, I think, three years of, of the total Russian imports. But the result of winning that gas is earthquakes uh, and, 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 and heavy, heavy and serious earthquakes. When the European Union has to answer the question, uh, will, will the Green Deal survive uh, this crisis? Uh, are we speeding up uh, alternative, uh, our ambition for alternative energy? Or will we end up with burning more coal? More, more coal, uh, as, as, as the Germans now have to do and the Dutch have to do. How will it influence the discussion on, on nuclear power? And, and then perhaps finally, I, and, and that's why I, I, I say I'm, I'm perhaps a bit pessimistic, although I very much hope that Robin, Robin's right in his, in his comments. 
I have my doubts about the younger generation uh, if, 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 if they uh, have not grown used too much to their wealth and their affluence uh, and their notion that freedom comes for free and then it costs nothing and no defense is not, not necessary. Uh, if, if, if they will not at a certain stage, uh, looking at my own children as well, early 40s, uh, who are very concerned about the environment uh, and, and the environment comes first and climate comes first and, and then comes social security and then education. And oh yes, there, there, is, there is a war going on on the European continent. In, 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 in that regard, I hope that our democracies are resilient. Uh, we have elections every four years, the Americans have elections. So it will be, it, for the European Union, uh, it will be very, very tough. But I do very much agree with Robin's, Robin Nibble's conclusions. We have to. I mean, we have to be able to afford it. Otherwise, we, we, we are almost giving up our democracies and we're giving up our, our liberal values. And that is too high a price for me to pay as well. Yep, you briefly raised whether the EU is getting too big and has too many member states, and I want to get uh, get to that. But just before we move on from the financial aspects of that, Larissa, I just want to ask you, in your conversations with defence officials from around the continent uh, on this issue of the, the defence commitments that they are preparing to undertake that are looking to become very expensive in the short to medium term, what do they tell you, um, if anything at all, about, about their own domestic uh, appetites um, for this cost and, and how is that going down in, in, in their own populations? Well, today there is a huge uh, debate in Britain actually over defence spending because we've heard from Ben Wallace, the Defence Secretary, and Liz Truss, the Foreign Secretary, who have said uh, in the last few hours that they want to see an increase to the defence budget, uh, but it seems like they're not going to get the increase that they want. Uh, number 10, uh, sources are briefing basically that they're not going to be able to even meet uh, commitments that they made in 2019 in the Tory manifesto, where they pledged to uh, uh, increase the defence budget so it would be 0.5 percent above inflation every year they're now saying that you know when we made that commitment actually we didn't know about covid and since then they've spent 400 billion pounds on tackling uh, the pandemic and now it's just not uh, realistic that they can keep on uh, increasing that defense budget and of course um as robin was was making clear that it's you know it's about uh, the political will to some extent but of course it's also about public opinion and countries uh, in europe are obviously facing a huge cost of living crisis at the moment so how do you persuade uh, members of the public that money should be spent on uh, sending more kit to Ukraine or, or boosting uh, boosting army numbers uh, if they're really struggling at home. Uh, we have also heard actually from the uh, chief of the general staff today, the new head of the army, and he's been making the case that uh, British troops need to get ready for war in Europe. And I think comments like that are probably going to uh, really resonate with people at home because for the first time they're going to think, oh, actually, uh, this war in Ukraine could actually affect us back here in Britain. So potentially you could see a bit of a uh, change of, of appetite uh, over the coming months if, if the countries like the UK do make that clear. Fascinating. So I, I want to just quickly go to um, what Yap said about the EU is now admitting so many members uh, it cannot function. Uh, 
NATO, just to go back to NATO, NATO has 30 members now and we're seeing many member states raising their own priorities and red lines when it comes to the coordinated response to Russia. We've got Hungary, Slovakia, the Czech Republic, three landlocked countries that depend almost exclusively uh, on Russian energy imports. They've already demanded and received exemptions to the EU-Russian crude oil ban. Turkey says it will not allow Finland and Sweden to join the alliance as long as they uh, harbour Kurdish activists who they consider to be terrorists. Uh, does does NATO need to reassess its handling of veto power that often stymies action being taken, even at a time of crisis like uh, like now, uh, lest it turn into an organisation like the UN, which suffers from all sorts of paralysis because of vetoes? Yap, that question to you first. No, my, my answer, my answer on, on your on your consensus rule question, I, I, I always hesitate to use the word veto in the NATO domain, in the NATO context, because if a veto formally doesn't exist and the word does hardly exist inside NATO. But I, I do really think that NATO has lived through the Cold War, uh, through the expeditionary period, as I called it, after the Cold War. And NATO will live through this period and, and this war in, 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 in Ukraine uh, on, on the basis of its decision-making model, uh, which, which is consensus. Uh, and I do not, I do not see uh, uh, any other option for the, for the alliance in the European Union, of course. Uh, we, we have we have consensus in crucial areas like foreign policy and and and, and defense. There, one of my uh, arguments would be uh, that if the uh, European Union would would take in more members, I mean we're talking about decades here, not not years, but decades. Uh, then, then definitely there, there should be a change in the in the decision-making structure. And you know that majority voting is already in, in many in many other areas, but not in the most important ones for our for our discussion. So I think the fundamental reappraisal needs to needs to take place uh, in inside the European Union. Uh, in 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 NATO, I, I think, uh, despite all the trouble we face from time to time, uh, this time with Turkey, but the next time it can be another nation, be it Hungary or, what, or, or whatever, that NATO can very well go on uh, to live efficiently and effectively on the basis of the consensus model. Uh, and you and you know uh, the the position any nation can take is we we do not agree, but we will not block the consensus. I mean, there's there's much more flexibility in the system, in my experience then it, it is a rigid system with a veto or, or, or no veto. So I'm, I'm, not, I'm not very concerned and I don't think that NATO should change its, its formal decision-making process in this regard. Robin, do you think it should keep unanimous uh, consensus or should it move to consensus by majority? No, I think I, think I agree entirely with you. I think it, it, it has to keep uh, consensus. This is, uh, after all, about people's defence. It's about putting troops on the line. It's the ultimate decision of sovereignty, and I can't think even of a small government that would, uh, that would give it up entirely in its capacity. In the end, what NATO has as a disciplining force, at least so far, uh, compared to the EU, has been that um, US kind of uh, uniting centripetal force that draws people together um, around the United States, and all the more so now that it faces a real threat again. Now, obviously, if there were a change in government, if we were to get, to be honest, Donald Trump, um, again, you know, maybe all bets are off. Um, but even a Republican president that was not Donald Trump uh, would have a very united Congress that takes a very tough line vis-a-vis uh, -vis Russia, as I think we all know. And so, you know, I don't think that would be the, you know, something that would change it. So I would, I think it's important to keep it. 
in the end, there are ways of sort of working the issue. Um, I think the, the big danger would be if the U.S. would want to go in its own direction. Will Turkey, and if you're going to come to this later, um, you know, end up sort of vetoing the enlargement? They've said that they might do it for a year. <laughs> I mean, the fact that they've even said that, which is so explicitly connected to Erdogan's election. But to be honest, at this point, with bilateral defense guarantees sort of offered, uh, even if gently, by the United Kingdom and the U.S., and, and a general acceptance. This is about maneuvering more than anything else. Um, and I, I agree, I just don't think the alliance will fragment around this and it can be effective enough uh, uh, even with it. Now, we are running out of time, unlike Vladimir Putin, who uh, seemingly has all the time in the world. Um, but I do really want to hear um, all, all of your opinions on the result of the French elections and how that might impact things. Um, the recent uh, French parliamentary elections, of course, saw Emmanuel uh, Macron lose his majority. And while no one expects France to withdraw from NATO or restrict its participation in it, the, there are many people who are interpreting the success of the populist parties as coming down to changing perceptions from the French about NATO and the EU, partly because Mélenchon and Marine Le Pen both fiercely oppose NATO and want France out of the alignment uh, alliance. Macron warned that France would be heading for a dangerous Soviet revolution if a left-green alliance led by the ex-Trotskyite Mélenchon took control of Parliament. That didn't happen. However, uh, how do you think the recent elections and new makeup of the French Parliament and political landscape? What do you think that means for NATO and its response uh, to Russia? We of course. Of course, uh, you, uh, both Robin and Yap, you've mentioned uh, that we may have a change in administration from the US, uh, leaving a little bit of a leadership vacuum. Uh, traditionally, we have looked to France, Germany, uh, the UK for, for strong um, leadership when it comes to NATO. So how do you think that the elections are going to affect that landscape? Uh, Robin, first to you. Well, if I come in first, the, the, the French have a, as we all know, a long tradition, post-war tradition, of um, being incredibly sceptical about being overly constrained by NATO. Uh, and that existed pr prior to February the 24th. You might remember when Joe Biden was elected, Macron mused that this was a time to double down on European strategic autonomy, and that Europeans should not be suckered in by a nice-speaking America's back president, and he got a little criticism for it. But So I, I think actually it's, it's a cross France reference point to be skeptical of NATO and although I don't follow French politics intensely closely from what I know of France um, the support for Mélenchon and even for Le Pen is more of a protest vote to the fact that they all had to vote for, vote for Macron in the first round sorry well in the in the presidential round and this was a chance for them to to kind of get even a bit and to, and to not give him a Jupiterian second term uh, so I think it is to do with uh, tax cuts for the rich is to do with uh, the left behinds, the sense of being ruled by elites. I, I sense less of the, uh, obviously they all had it in their campaigns, and more on the left in particular, um, potentially than, than even on the, on the right. But uh, this is a cross-country uh, position, but I just don't feel it's the defining element that led to the support that they got um, in the parliamentary elections. So, yeah, it's going to make life more complicated. But I think Macron is capable of channeling the majoritarian 
French position, which is skeptical about the United States leading European security, is a bit less skeptical about Ukraine, if I can put it that way. Do you see what I mean? And I think that's an important distinction for the next uh, year or two. I think, uh, if I may, if I may add, uh, uh, I, I think Macron uh, will. Uh, have to build a coalition uh, on important points with the Les Républicains. Uh, he can do that, although the French are not used to coalitions at all. It's that's 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 quite unFrench in that in that in that regard. Uh, and we should realize that in in the French system, the uh, President de la République has a lot of powers uh, in the in the international on the international scene in the international domain. We haven't discussed an important uh, topic at the NATO summit yet, which is China. Now, let's not forget that, that uh, the relationship between the United States of America and China is the main theater in the world, as far as I'm concerned, and, and even not Ukraine, although we have discussed it a lot. And you'll, 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 see, you'll see Macron uh, taking a, a special position on China. I understand there's still discussion about the language in the communique, and they have now found out a word like, like systemic challenge or whatever. If you don't know what to do as a diplomat, you call something uh, systemic. Uh, uh, not not an opponent, certainly not an enemy. Anyway, uh, Ma Ma Macron will find his way uh, in the in the as Robin said in the well known essential elements of French policy uh, that is going on about about uh, strategic autonomy in Europe. I don't know what that means, by the way. The Americans do not like the word autonomy. They say strategic sovereignty. Okay, strategic autonomy. No, no. What what is European Union defense uh, and strategic autonomy without the United Kingdom in the European Union? That's only France. That's France plus. So you need the UK when you want to have that discussion. But on the whole, I, I do not see fundamental changes in, in the well-known well essentials of French foreign policy uh, after Macron did, did much worse in the legislative as, as, as we perhaps thought. Final question to all of you. Uh, what, in your opinion, in your own personal opinions, is the most important decision that NATO will have to make uh, as it comes out of the summit this week? Larissa, you first. Wow. Um, I think working out how, where this 300,000 is going to come from, I think they need to basically have something a bit more concrete than just some sort of figure that's been plucked out of the air. Mm. And do you expect to see a decision on that? Do you th expect to see many NATO member states uh, putting their hands up and saying, yes, you can take 50,000 of our troops, so there's going to be much appetite <laughs> to contribute to that force? I think I'd hope to have a better idea by the end <laughs> of the week, uh, but I'm not sure if we're going to have it all sort of laid out in front of us. The, the main message, as far as I'm concerned, from of this summit should be uh, a continuation of the of the I repeat unprecedented political solidarity the alliance has shown and is showing vis-à-vis -vis a horrible war on the European continent. That that is, in my opinion, and with all that entails, as we have discussed during the past hour, but political solidarity, a very clear political message from the North Atlantic Alliance. That's that's for me the essential thing. Yeah, and I, I would just build on that. I think, again, to me, Ukraine is the most important statement to come out of this, because in a way it'll be the platform from which to manage the inevitable schisms and splits and, and fragmentation that's likely to, to start uh, uh, happening you know, from the summer onwards. Um, so you need this moment to almost bind everyone together. Um, around a common position from which then it's hard for the more uh, uh, doubtful members to, to escape later on. So, to be honest, all the other staff, as Larissa was saying, it's going to be a lot of you know, really hard graft work to work out how much money is there, where does it come from, what troops, what do we mean by rapid reaction readiness, 
that's going to be the business of years, um, and it is important because it's starting now. But the moment, what really counts the rest of the year is a strong position on Ukraine that is sustained, that gives the best possible chance of sustaining it against what is a, you know, one-man rule um, in Russia, which gives him so much more near-term flexibility. We are out of time. We've gone slightly over time. Uh, we could have gone for so much longer, um, but unfortunately we are not able to do so. Um, I want to thank uh, my guests, Yabdahoop Scheffler, Robin Niblett, Larissa Brown. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to everyone who is tuning in, uh, watching this live stream. Uh, we are in town all week, as they say. Uh, we are going to be uh, putting out a lot of our interviews uh, and a lot of our um, uh, debriefs. So we have a conversation with Sir Richard Dearlove at the end of the summit, giving us his take on how the week has gone and what the important decisions uh, that need to be made uh, will be. So thank you to everyone uh, for listening and join us again soon. Don't forget to follow us, uh, One Decision, and keep up with all of our latest podcasts. Thank you so much to everyone who's been tuning in.